Welcome to the Professional Brewers Podcast, sponsored by Grenfell Meadery and hosted by me, Ricky the Mead Maker. This show is for brewers of all kinds, anyone looking to get into brewing professionally, folks who want to peek behind the scenes at their favorite brewery, or merely the brew curious. Whether you're an old hand in the industry or you're just starting your professional brewing journey, we hope this show helps you become a better, more profitable, happier brewer. If you find this show helpful or just enjoy listening to my dulcet tones, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash professional brewers podcast. There's also exclusive content over there as well as the opportunity to ask questions of upcoming guests. On this week's show, I talk to Sam Howard, the wandering brewer. We follow his journey from Connecticut to Vermont, off to Hawaii, over to Berlin, and at last to a monastery in Bavaria. If your dream is to travel the world and drink great beer, Sam's story will be incredibly inspiring. We cover everything from brewing in a Hawaiian valley that has no power or running water, to the impact of the Reinheitsgebot on brew pubs in Berlin. You do not want to miss this episode. And now, without further ado, Sam from Kostobrari et al. Sam Howard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ricky. So, we're going to start where we always start. Tell me a little about your role at the brewery, uh, about your brewery, how big it is, what you focus on, and anything else that you think makes it interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, so my role at the brewery is brewer. Um, I've made my brewmaster certificate, um, but at the time that I started the brewery, I was still a brewer, so my role hasn't changed in that time. Um, brewery itself is called Kloster uh, Brauerei Etal, which is a monastic brewery in the town of Etal in southern Germany. Uh, it's what you would call a middle-sized brewery. I think that's quite relative, actually. Depends who you're asking what middle size is. Um, but here in Germany, and especially Bavaria, middle size, our brewery is 6,000 hectoliters in the year. Um, for all the American brewers, 6,000 hectoliters is 5,113 barrels per year. Um, so this would be considered a middle-sized brewery, but just at the beginning of middle size, which I think actually for a lot of Americans would be considered almost on the larger size, but it's still still somewhere in the middle. Certainly not a um, Gasthaus Brauerei, a brew pub, right? Yep, yep. Um, so certainly not a, a brew pub size, a little bit bigger, but also nowhere near a macro brewery. Um, so somewhere kind of in the sweet spot, what I would consider. Yeah, and how did you end up there? Um, I think Google Maps is the... I can thank Google Maps for finding this brewery because I was sitting in class one day during the master school. Um, this was in Munich at an academy called Dumans Academy. And I was sitting in school one day, and I think that the topic just wasn't really interesting me too much. Uh, and I started Googling breweries because I knew the studies would be over uh, in a few months. And so we needed to start applying to breweries. Um, so I went onto Google Maps. I zoomed in on the 
Bavarian Alps, and I typed in brewery or, uh, or Brauerei. Uh, and it came up with a couple results. And I sent my CV to these breweries. And quite quickly, I think within, within the afternoon, I had a call um, from one of the breweries I applied to. And they said, hey, if you can come down on the weekend, we'd be happy to interview you. Of course, they spoke in German, not in English. Uh, and I went down that weekend. They interviewed me. And about one or two weeks later, they said, hey, we'd like to offer you the job. And uh, I was glad to take it. That's amazing. So tell me about your whole path. You're not from Germany originally. How did Correct. you, where did you start? Tell You probably have the most interesting uh, rambling brewer story of anyone that I know. Well, you better than anyone know uh, where I began. I think professionally, at least. Uh, I began with you at Brunfell, at the Meadery, professionally. Um, do you want a few steps back? I was going to say, Sam was actually our first intern. Is that true? Yeah, you were our very first intern. It was almost, uh, it would have been nine years ago, right? Um, Eight years ago? 2000... Either 2014 or 15, I want to yeah. say. Yeah. Um, so the very, very beginning um, was when I was 17. And I looked out into the, gar the garden, the field at my parents' house, and I saw a bunch of dandelions. And I was curious what you could do with dandelions, what you could make with that. Uh, and I Googled... <laughs> dandelion recipes and i saw jelly and jam and such but i also saw a recipe for dandelion wine and i thought oh how interesting i can't buy alcohol but apparently i can make alcohol so i harvested a bunch of dandelions and i made a dandelion wine having no idea what i was doing uh i used an old dog food bucket from my father i used baker's yeast and I didn't have an airlock, so I put tin foil over the top and poked holes in it. It was the most amateur thing you've ever seen. But it produced alcohol. I think if I were to taste it today, I would take one sip and put it down and say, thank you, uh, no more. At the time, it was, well, it's certainly an achievement. You know, as a 17-year-old to brew something, uh, yeah, I was, I was quite excited about this. And that opened the gate for me. And from that point on, I started to investigate what else I could brew. Uh, and the next logical step was mead, because the ingredients and the process was more accessible to me than you know, other processes, beer brewing, for example. So then I began brewing mead at home in small batches, I think maybe uh, five gallons at a time. And this is what really sparked my interest in fermentation and brewing. Uh, and it stayed a hobby for actually quite some time until I was in college and I studied business at the, um, well, Champlain, Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. And I took a business course and the first week our, our professor asked us, where would you like to see yourself in five years? And I was sitting in the back of the class. So my answer was at the very end. And all my classmates had very professional answers. Um, some saying, I would like to work at a Fortune 500 company. 
I would like to be the CEO of of this major corporation uh, and so on. And I still didn't know at this time. I knew what interested me, but I didn't know what I wanted to do professionally. So when it came time for me to answer, uh, I said, in five years, I would like to be sitting on a beach drinking a beer that I brewed. And this, this was apparently the worst answer I could possibly give uh, because the teacher said, this is, you, you need to think again and come up with a new answer because that's not serious. And part of the um, prerequisites for this class was that we had to make an internship somewhere. And so out of pure spite to this teacher, I decided my internship would be at a brewery. And that's how I found my way to you at Gronfell. And that is exactly my experience of you showing up, having taking nothing seriously and yet making it work. Because I'm yeah. going to fill in the next part of the story, which is my favorite. You were like the laziest intern we ever had, but you never screwed anything up. And it was amazing. You like you could put in exactly the right amount of work to get the thing done. And in many ways now, 10 years later, almost I'm like that's that's the way to do it. A lot of people, it's an art form, just being lazy enough. But I remember after you graduated, that professor, your business professor, do you know he wrote to me? He came He came to our like uh, graduation. I don't know how to call it, but uh, we brewed a final recipe, a firkin, yep. uh, my kind of send off. And he came. And joined us for that. And I I found that very um, respectful. And that changed my opinion towards him as well. Well, two months after you graduated, it was, you know, almost the start of the next semester. And he sent me an email and said, I don't know what you did, but Sam's a different person. <laughs> and I was like, Sam's the same person. You just understand him now. Yeah. And so then out of nowhere, you call me for like somewhere on the West Coast, right? Where were you? What happened Hawaii. next? Hawaii. Were you already in Hawaii? Probably, yeah. 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 Uh, from Grunfell, after graduating, um, shortly after I moved to Hawaii, and worked uh, for three years in Hawaii. So I, I imagine that was where... So actually, when he asked us this question, you know, in five years, where do you want to be? And my answer was, sitting on a beach, drinking a beer I brewed. It was three years later that I sat on that beach on Hawaii drinking a beer that I brewed. And I was thinking, man, if you could only see this. <laughs> Two years earlier, even. <laughs> what success. So then you go from Hawaii to Germany. How did that happen? Um, Oktoberfest was the connection. Uh, I was working... Three years in Hawaii, I spent two, about two years at a brewery called um, Big Island Brew House in Waimea on the Big Island of Hawaii. Um, and then I also did a short stint at a kombucha brow, uh, brewery, um, and that was in Hilo on the west coast of the Big Island. Um, and I decided to take a vacation and thought, hey, for a beer brewer, you know, what's the ultimate vacation? Oktoberfest in Munich. So I went to Oktoberfest um, and 
out of coincidence, a friend of mine from Hawaii was also going to Oktoberfest at the exact same time, pure coincidence, and said, hey, you know, if we both find time, let's meet up. So uh, he was there to visit a friend that he had met um, prior, and they were going together to Oktoberfest. So I joined their group. Yeah, it was uh, my friend from Hawaii and his friend uh, Max Seidel from Regensburg. And during a conversation while we were sitting in the tent at uh, Oide Wiesen, the old and traditional tent at Oktoberfest, uh, I told him, you know, one of my dreams would be to brew beer in Bavaria. And he said, ah, oh, well, you know, we're family friends with the brewmaster from uh, from a brewery in our area. I can introduce you guys. And so what started off as a conversation with that brewmaster and saying, hey, if I wanted to do this, what are the steps I should take to become a brewer in Bavaria? And after a month or two of talking, he said, tell you what, if you'd like, um, we can offer you an internship here at our brewery. You'll have a room to stay. Um, you'll get food two times a day and you'll get paid. Um, so if this interests you, you're welcome. And within a day or two, I decided to sell all my stuff and move to Germany. Um, and I think it was about a month later, I was in Bavaria in a very small town. So it was quite a culture shock going from Hawaii to a small town in Bavaria uh, where they they hardly speak German. They speak a very specific dialect of German, very specific dialect of of, of Bavarian. Um, but it was, I think, one of the best choices in my life. Uh, the goal was to improve my brewing Braukunst. Uh, the goal was to improve my art of brewing. Art of brewing. Yes, sure. If you want to, if you want to uh, directly translate it, yes, yeah. art of brewing. Yeah. And it's been a great choice. Um, I made an internship there. Uh, practicum is what it's called for six months. And at the end of those six months, I searched for a new brewery and then eventually landed in Berlin. Um, I spent three years in Berlin at a small brew pub um, where we produced, it was 100 hectos. 100 hectoliters in the year, which now I do 100 hectos like in two days. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, yeah, big change. But what was great there is I had complete uh, freedom to do whatever I wanted, to brew whatever I wanted. And in those three years, I brewed a little over 70 unique beer styles. Yeah, it was, it was really a good opportunity for learning what. I liked uh, for flavors in my beer, what I liked uh, as a brewing process, uh, but it was also very small. So there was a lot to achieve still after that. Um, and then that's how I ended up going to the Brown, uh, Brew Master School, Braumeister Schule. Uh, it took one year. And after finishing that, I ended up here in Etal. So one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is the Rhein-Heinz-Gebot. And 
when you called me, I, my phone rang at work and it showed me that the number was from Germany. And I was like, who the hell is calling me from Germany? Like no one in my family would just call me at work. So uh, I pick up, it's you. And you said you were going to brew a mead at the brew pub. So I'm fairly familiar with the Reinhardt's book, but for people who are not, I would love if you who have to probably live under it for your current job could talk about which breweries are covered by it, a little bit of the history of it, and are brew pubs exempt? So um, Reinheitsgebot is the German purity law of 1516. Uh, so a little over 500 years old. And this was the first law that controlled what you're allowed to put in your beer. Uh, and according to this law, you're only allowed to put water, malted barley, yeast, and hops. Um, so I say malted barley because wheat was not allowed. This was originally done, from what I understand, of course, uh, as a way to save wheat for bread production. Uh, and of course, there were acceptances um, to this law, and this was. Normally for the nobility, they were allowed to brew wheat beer, which most normal breweries were not allowed to brew. Um, but this is the origin of the of the law. And it's still relevant to this day. If you look at a lot of uh, German beer and on the labels, it will say um, brewed to the German purity law of 1516. Um, and that means that they're using only these four ingredients. And it's still a law to this day. If you want to put beer on your label, it has to be brewed with these four ingredients. And if it's brewed with anything except these four ingredients, it has to be labeled differently. You're not allowed to say beer. You would have to say something like um, beer mixed product or beer with so-and-so um for a brew pub this is not so difficult if you just have a um you know a board where you're writing what beer you're serving it's not much of a problem um but as soon as you're putting that into a bottle and you have a label on it then you're entering kind of a a legal area where you have to be uh, specific in what your product is um, so in my time in Berlin, it didn't present any challenges because you can just clearly write on the board you know, what uh, what your beer was made with. Um, and at that brewery, we only had, at the time, when I started, we had one beer in the bottle, and that was a, a sort of a pale ale. And towards the end, we put one more uh, product in the bottling line and that was a helles um but these were all reinheitsgebot conform um so there was no no issues with labeling that but you have to pay attention to this uh if you're a brewer in germany and especially if you're using things that don't fit to this uh, uh specific guideline i was told on one of my products i needed to call it other than standard agricultural wine with honey simply because it was a mead that had a non-standard fruit added. It was like, I'm not going to put that on my label. 
And they're like, well, I'm sorry, you can't you can't use the M word. I was like, it's 99% meat. Yeah. It has herbs as we're finishing it. That is an other than standard agricultural wine product. Um, our other funny one is you can't put, unless it is a varietal grape, you cannot put a four-digit number on your bottle that makes it look like it's a vintage. Because only grapes have a vintage. Honey doesn't have a vintage. Blueberries don't have a vintage under U.S. law. Limited to two numbers or three numbers? Three numbers, yes. Two numbers might just be the end of a four-digit number, but... You're yeah. allowed to date code your product. Uh-huh. Yep. So we have our own weird set here. I would, I think I'd rather brew under the Ryan Heiskabot, but so. Yeah, at least with Ryan Heiskabot, you get four numbers there. <laughs> right. Six. What does your current brewery specialize in? And what drew you to it other than the fact that they were willing to hire you to live in the most beautiful place I have ever seen out the window of an interview? Yeah. Um. So we brew five types of uh, traditional Bavarian beer. Helles, Dunkles, Merzen, Hellebock, and Dunklebock. Uh, and this would be a... They're all lagers. They're all bottom-fermenting beer. It would be a light lager in terms of color, a dark lager, a Merzen, uh, which is more of like an... Amber lager, which and, we often call an Oktoberfest here, right? It's it's yeah. also known as Oktoberfest or Fest beer. Um, it's a little bit more alcohol. Uh, you get a bit more of the malt character from the beer, uh, and then we also brew a dark bock and a light bock. So this is uh, just a little bit more alcohol. And a bit more from the malt character as well. What was that transition like going from that level of production a year to that level of production every two days? And what kind of pressure is there? I know consistency is really, really important for a lot of those monastic breweries. So what was that like where you got to experiment versus basically your QC uh, constantly? Uh, well, I had a bit of a, a buffer in between. I was one year in the master school in Munich. So it wasn't you know, from one day to the next uh, a difference in production. There was a, a process, and I definitely learned a lot in between these two breweries. But it was also a big change. Uh, I was completely independent in the brewery in Berlin. Didn't work with anybody. Uh, it was just me alone in the brewery. And now I work actually with only one other brewer, but we also have um, a beer driver, beer fahrer. We have uh, the guys who drive the beer to the customers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, we have one helper as well. Um, he's actually a a gentleman from Ukraine at the moment. Well, yeah, for, I think, uh, an unforeseen amount of time, there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees that are being hosted in the monastery. Uh, the town where I live has a population of about 500. 
And of that, 100 of them are from Ukraine. Um, and they're just, at the time, it's mostly mothers and children and a few young men as well. And they're being integrated into the yeah, the village. And a lot of them have found work somehow in the monastery, in the brewery. We also have a distillery. Um, there's a lot of work to be done in the village. And so right now we have also a, a young Ukrainian man. Uh, his name is Yevn. He's one of my favorite coworkers. I love this guy. So your team is two brewers, a driver. Would you call him an assistant brewer? Um, we have two brewers, two drivers, and then a brewery helper, I guess we would call him. And he fills in wherever we need help. So if it's on the deliveries for our beer, if it's on the bottling line, um, if it's on the keg filling line, then he steps in and, and helps. Um, so the brewery runs with about five people and, of course, a boss. Um, so six people, and we're able to produce 6,000 hectoliters in the year. Uh, I think a lot of this is due to the fact that the brew house itself is mostly automated. Um, in the brew house, I think about 90% is automated. It's You're able to control it from uh, the computer. And then the other 10% you have to do by hand, opening a couple of valves, spraying out the tanks and such. Um, and then everything in the keller, uh, the cellar, is with your hand. Um, so in the brewery, uh, the brew house, it's mostly automated. And then in the cellar, it's mostly still with your hand. Uh, and what I find really interesting is because most of the stuff was built around the machinery, you're not able to very easily switch out you know, the old uh, brewery with a new brewery. So our old brewery is still there. It's abandoned with the old copper tanks. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I wish I could work on this brewery. Um, but because there was no option to take these tanks out and then put new ones in, instead they built onto this. And now we have an entirely new brewery. Uh, and I always search where my key works, you know, which doors it will open. And I found so many abandoned, so the old uh the old tanks, they're not tanks, it's just like holes in the ground basically you know with ceramic that have been abandoned for decades and old silos and i'm always curious where does my key work you know and i it's it's like a maze and i found so many abandoned brewery relics uh and the funny part is also that sometimes you know i i find this old equipment and i think oh i've worked with this in a brewery before and in, in like where i made my uh a practicum where I made my internship in Bavaria in Regensburg. Uh, so yeah, like you know, this is abandoned here, but it's still in use about, you know, a hundred kilometers away from here. And all the time I get ads, mostly direct emails from China, trying to sell me modern recreations of this equipment. And it's like, 
millions of dollars. And it's just, it's just insane. People want that equipment so badly, but it's that equipment is right now abandoned about you know 200 meters from me right now. That's that's wild. Uh tell me a little bit about the distillery. I didn't know about that part. Do you do the base? Do you do the mash for them or do they uh do it all in-house? Um, so there's also a distillery here. It is led by one monk. Uh, his name is Patafitadis, which um, I guess you could translate to vitality. Yeah, Fitadis. Yeah. And he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. He's uh, very outspoken and very knowledgeable. I can ask him about any herb, any plant, uh, and he will have so much to say about anything you know uh one day he noticed me when i was picking dandelions for dandelion wine this year he saw me and asked what i was doing and within two or three minutes he pointed out within one square meter at least 10 plants that i can take and use for some you know tea or or some sort of medicine he just knew everything about everything uh and he's controlling this uh he's in charge of this distillery right now um and at the moment i and we as the brewers have very little to do with the distillery um from what i understand the licensing to produce the distilled alcohol is quite difficult uh to obtain and so what they do there in the distillery is they obtain the uh, pre-distilled alcohol and then take this and add more ingredients to it herbs or berries or what have you and then distill it another one or two or three times um so that they're still distilling it and still making it their own but the the mash is not coming from us as much as i would like this to be um because i have a couple of good ideas you know uh I'd love to make a whiskey and there's a lot of things I'd like to make, but from what I understand, it comes down to the licensing. Um, and so at the moment, the alcohol, the ethanol comes uh, from somewhere else. It's outsourced and then it comes to us and then is redistilled uh, with whatever ingredients he chooses. That's fascinating. I know a lot of the French uh, monasteries do it the exact same way. There's one facility that produces almost all of the base alcohol and then is distributed out. Mm -hmm. So, Sam, it's late in the okay. evening for you. Is it? Are you ready? Must be. Are you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it. Okay. What's your favorite thing to drink that's not one of your own products? Ooh. Um... Juice. Like, is a very broad answer, juice. All juice. Yeah. You know what's funny? Almost no one has answered this question with an alcohol yet. A lot of people, it's like cold brew coffee. I dig. Yeah. What's the worst disaster you've had as a brewer? Any brewery that you've worked at? And I don't want to answer it. So pass. Pass. I'll give you, I'll give you a pass. <laughs> uh, for old time's sake. Yeah. 
What would you be doing if you weren't a brewer? Well, uh, my mind goes to what my hobbies are. And I like very much being outdoors. So maybe some sort of outdoor guide, canoe, rafting, um, quite sure. But yeah, my mind goes to what my hobbies are and my hobbies are being outdoors. If I hired you as a fishing guide right now, would you take the job? Mm, right now, no. I'm very uh, happy where I am. But I love fishing. So, uh, I mean, you can see, our guests can't see. Here, I have a fish. And up here. And the next one comes here quite soon. So uh, what I'm seeing is numerous, very botanically accurate or whatever, not botanically accurate, very accurate uh, fish tattoos on multiple limbs of Sam's body. Almost every photo I've ever gotten of you is not in the brew house, but it's some fishing trial. Fish, yeah. What's your favorite thing you've ever brewed? Oh, I was hoping you would ask this. Um, so. As I was living in, living in Hawaii, I had a friend whose name was also Sam, and he lived in YPO Valley. This is a, quite an off-grid valley in Hawaii, and Sam did not drink, per se. He would have an occasional beer, occasional cocktail, but otherwise did not drink. And he lived in an off-grid property in the very back of the valley. There was no property behind his. It's as far back as you can go. And I convinced him to brew a beer at his home. He has, he had no electricity. He had no running water. We took the water to brew this beer from the spring, like the, the natural spring right behind his house. We cooked it over a fire. And we cooled it in the river next to his house. It was as natural as it could be. And then it fermented in the valley. And at that time, he also um, took vacation. So when I wanted to check on it, I had to hike into the valley. Uh, I think maybe about five miles. And it's uh, the entrance into the valley is the steepest road in the United States. So about one mile down the steepest road, in the US and then another four miles back to his property just to check on the beer and then to bottle it. And then when it was done, it was a, um, a Hefeweizen. So also kind of a bit foretelling for my future. So when it was finally done, we said, hey, I think we should drink this beer where it was created, you know, in this valley. So we invited all our friends and said, hey, um, we're going to tap this beer on this day. If you'd like to come meet us at the beach, because at the very um, beginning of the valley was the beach. But to get to the spot that we had invited everybody, you had to cross a river. So we loaded all the beer onto a surfboard and crossed the river with water you know, up to our chests and floated the beer over and got it to our spot. And you know, on that day, drank drank the beer until it was empty 
And there has never been a more rewarding beer than that one. It was just so um, pure, so natural, and shared with good friends. And I'm, I'm very proud and I have very good memories of this beer. So you can't win at the lightning round, but if you could win, you just won the best you know beer. What? We called that beer YPO Lightning Wheat. Um, because when we finished that beer, there was a lightning storm. And there's very rarely lightning in Hawaii, at least uh, on the big island where we lived. But in that night, there were two dueling lightning storms, one in the front of the valley and one in the back. And you couldn't count to one without seeing a lightning strike. So on that day, we called it YPO Lightning Wheat. So it fits perfectly, actually, to the theme. Amazing. What keeps you going on your toughest days? Beer. And what's one piece of advice you would give to yourself before you decided to go pro? Um, patience. I think quite often uh, I didn't have enough patience to to communicate properly what I wanted to communicate. Uh, very often I said the first thing that came to mind, and this is not the best thing to do. Sometimes you should think think about what you want to say, and then maybe think about it again. Um, especially when you're working with, you know, people that you have been working with for a long time and will continue to work with, uh, the best thing to do is be diplomatic. And in the beginning of my career, I think I was just a little bit too, uh, impatient and not patient enough. That, uh, yeah, I certainly could have thought more about what I was doing um, in terms of my coworkers. Communication, communication and patience. These are the two things. Yeah. Well, Sam, I cannot thank you enough for joining us from the other side of the globe. Gladly. I look forward to when we can share a beer, share a meat together, whether that be in Germany or Vermont. I can't wait. My guest today was Sam Howard from Klosterbrauerei et al. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to professionalbrewers.com for more amazing content to help you on your professional brewing journey. And for exclusive content, as well as the opportunity to ask questions of upcoming guests, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash professionalbrewerspodcast. Your support makes this show possible. Thanks for listening. Cheers.